his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. This is the Bob Cordaro Show podcast. WILK News Radio. Opposite of normal. Opposite of real. There's a wide range in there of normal and normalcy. Wide range. But enough. Uh, This Sunday on the Bob Canaro Show on TV, we're going to be bringing you uh, ladies from the Providence Pregnancy Center. And they are doing incredible work. You'll be, you'll be, you'll fall in love with them. You'll be fascinated with what they do at Providence Pregnancy Center. Uh, I urge you. That's eleven thirty Sunday on WNEP TV, and uh, you'll enjoy it. And and as we've been mentioning, the big tent sale, closeout sale, going on at Dunmore Lumber at six twenty two South Blakely Street, Dunmore. Uh, you'll be happy you went. Our veterans that we're honoring today: Russell Conklin. Of Susquehanna. Jeremy Watkins of Tonkanic. Harold Portis of Madison Township. Dwayne Shear of Clifford Township. And Dr. Joseph Daniel, late of York, originally of German PA. So we started this discussion earlier in the week with the great Rick Bigelow. And the Manhattan Project and and all that it entailed. And we got through the lead-in. And both of us decided we've really got to do more on this. This This is important stuff. It was what ended the war. It also showed the greatness of America. Not only, not only because they did the seemingly impossible scientifically, but it was emblematic of the country because it, these were all, not all, so many of those who were involved in the effort were immigrants, legal Im- immigrants, I might add, that made this country great. Rick Bigelow, welcome back, my friend. Uh, Glad to be with you, Bob. So we left off just as they were getting to the testing. But give us a a quick summary, if you would. Uh, We've got Enrico Fermi involved. We've got Robert Oppenheimer put in charge of it. We've got facilities in, I guess I'm giving the summary, in Tennessee and uh, Hanford in Washington State that are doing their parts. We've got... um, Plutonium bombs. We've got uh, uh, hydrogen bombs, I guess. But 
now we've got to get to the point where they somehow build this reactor through Fermi's group. It's a, it just blows my mind thinking about the concepts. And now they've got a test. Start telling us from there. Okay. Uh, like you said, uh, Fermi's group in Chicago uh, made the reactor go critical for the first time. So that really uh, proved the theory. And now it was up to uh, the scientists and engineers to actually make a, a, a nuclear and atomic weapon. And, and so uh, Groves approved building of the facilities in Hanford, Washington, and Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And then they needed a site where they could uh, actually uh, construct the bombs. And that was going to be in Los Alamos, uh, New Mexico, in a very remote part of, of New Mexico. Uh, so eventually, tens of thousands of scientists and engineers and technicians and administrative personnel, so on and so forth, uh, worked at the three main sites and at several different uh, smaller sites throughout the nation. And the amazing thing is most of them didn't know what they were working on. You know, they, they were hired to do a specific job, and uh, it, it could uh, entail anything from uh, – just sit here and watch this dial and and make sure it doesn't do, go too far from this from the norm. Uh, there are a lot of construction people. There are a lot of engineers who are working on explosives, but they had no idea what type of explosive it was going to be and so on and so forth. So they compartmentalized so they came, the, the, the knowledge. They did. They, they ab- absolutely did. And, uh, you know, Groves was uh, paranoid about security. In, in fact, uh, a lot of people have asked me, well, how come Einstein wasn't part of this? And uh, Einstein couldn't get a security clearance because mm-hmm. he was a socialist and he had written extensively about his admiration for Lenin in Russia. And he was kind of a globalist and so on and so forth. So uh, and actually, he was older at the time and and uh, nuclear atomic scientists are sort of like professional athletes. Their best work happens, you know, by the time they're 35, and then they just, you know, they're not as active and and not as innovative as as they were when they were younger. But you know, the other thing is, so many of the uh, the top scientists we've got were immigrants. Uh, you know, Teller and Fermi, and Hans Bethe, and so on and so forth, and even uh, Oppenheimer's father uh, had immigrated from Germany. So it just. Uh, it just goes to show how it really was an American effort. And it, I think the, the Germans could have done it, uh, but they kind of went down the wrong pathway. Uh, the British certainly could have done Sci- it. But scientifically, they but they also uh, they also chased out some of their most talented scientists. That's exactly right. In, in fact, there were some 1,500 uh, German scientists who left and most went to uh, England or the United States. And interestingly enough, some of the scientists went to Russia uh, because they were socialist, communist, and they wanted to go to the communist paradise. And so they were in, in Russia for a year or so and decided this isn't what it was advertised <laughs> to be. And they eventually made it to the United States. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of questions about Oppenheimer's uh, loyalty to the country and so on and so forth. And I think by the time he talked to a lot of these uh, 
formerly German scientist who went to Russia and then came to the U.S., he had decided that uh, the Soviet Union was not all it was supposed to be. And he, he was, without a doubt, a very loyal American. So they looked at uh, different concepts for, for building the bomb, and they finally came up with a method that was uh, called the gun method, and it would involve a shooting at a very high speed a clump, a subcritical clump of uranium or plutonium into another subcritical clump of uranium and plutonium. And it had to go at a very high speed so that uh, it, it would explode all at once. Uh, the amazing thing about the atomic uh, explosions in the bombs was uh, a neutron would hit a U-235 atom and fission into two separate uh, atoms and produce more neutrons and energy. And that was what was so intriguing to scientists about it. But in one millionth of a second, that happened 80 times for each uranium atom that initially struck a, uh, pardon me, for each neutron that stuck, struck a uh, uranium-235 nucleus. So it, it was just amazing. And in, for the, uh, the bombs that were dropped in Japan, uh, there were something like two, two with uh, 24 zeros after it, fissions that took place in less than a second. Uh, it, just phenomenal numbers. Uh, so they, they looked at this gun method and decided that that would work for, uh, for the uranium bomb. And, and they were so sure of the uranium bomb working that uh, they, they, and they didn't have that much uranium because uh, separating U-235 from U-238 was a very time-consuming and difficult progress, uh, process. And they built these huge facilities in Oak Ridge to, uh, to make that happen. They just didn't have enough uranium-235. So they decided to test it out uh, with the plutonium bomb. And the plutonium bomb, they <coughs> did some calculations and figured that the gun method wasn't going to work for the plutonium bomb. So they had to come up with an alternate method, and that was the implosion bomb where they had a, a sphere of plutonium around it. They created another sphere and then they would explode the uh, outer sphere inward, and that would uh, make the critical mass uh, quickly enough so that it would explode. So by the spring of 1945, uh, it was pretty clear that uh, Germany was not going to be able to develop the bomb, but they still, they still were uh, looking hard to, to make sure that there was no secret German facility but they decided they were still going to go forward with it and uh, use it in Japan. Uh, and after Germany surrendered in May of 1945, they continued working on the, uh, the atomic bombs at, uh, at Los Alamos. So the focus shifted to dropping the bombs on Japan. Uh, by July of 1945, there was enough plutonium available for two bombs and enough for uh, uranium for one uranium bomb. So the the uh, project scientists, like I said, they're 100% sure that the uranium bomb was going to work, so they decided to test the plutonium bomb at uh, Alamogordo, which was about 200 miles south of the Los Alamos facility. And they called the plutonium bomb 
uh, Fat Man, and it was because it was a much bigger uh, bomb than the uranium bomb. Some people think it was named that after Groves, <laughs> but uh, but that wasn't the case. It was because it was just larger. So they said they would do a test of the plutonium bomb uh, to prove that it would work. The the test took place on July 16th of 1945, and this was at the same time that the Potsdam Conference was going on in uh, Potsdam, Germany, between uh, Churchill, Truman, and Stalin. Uh, and Churchill actually lost the election in the UK in late 1945, July 1945, and was replaced by Clement Attlee. So Attlee, all of a sudden, one day Churchill was there. The next day, Attlee was the prime minister of the UK. So they, they put this uh, fat man bomb on a 100-foot tower, and uh, you know there were all kinds of concerns about, is it going to work? Is it going to ignite the atmosphere? Is it going to be a dud? Uh, are we going to turn all of New Mexico into glass? Yeah. And so on and so forth. And uh, it, it worked. Uh, the estimated yield was 10,000 tons of TNT, and the actual yield was about 18,000 uh, tons of TNT. The amazing thing about this is when Truman mentioned it to Stalin at Potsdam, Stalin wasn't surprised because he already knew about it because of the spying that the Russians had done in actually inside the Manhattan Project. Hmm. So well, we're going we we get- to take a break. We're talking with Rick Bigelow about the Manhattan Project. The test is successful. Uh, we had the yield we expected. The Soviets knew about it. Now we move forward after this break to Hiroshima and Nagasaki with our friend, the great patent attorney and historian, Rick Bigelow, after this. And the tape has finally given out after months and months and months of use, so I had to get a, uh, a spare headset to complete the program. And I did, and now the wires are all tangled and all that kind of thing. But uh, I'll survive. <laughs> I think about, I think about the the headaches I have in my job, and I compare them to the headaches of people with real jobs, and I have to, I have to chuckle. <laughs> and uh, then let's then then we go a step further to talk. Like I'm worried about tangled wires, but. That's my big problem for the day. Isn't that crazy? Anyway, uh, you did hear the history. Hurricane Harvey, this date, 2017. And uh, it was it was a big one. It was a big one. Bob Cadaro back with you. Oh, and not climate change related. They've had these in the turn of the last century in Galveston. So... <laughs> Don't think it's like there isn't anything new under the sun. They're just pretending there is. So we have now talked about the tests are good. And now we've got to go to the bomb. And we're talking with our friend, patent attorney, Rick Bigelow, who's the uh, war historian for this program. Rick Bigelow. So now we've got to pick targets. And that's where the United States government is. World War II is raging. We're marching up the islands towards Japan. We're seeing the level of casualties and know that they're going to be uh, multiplied when we try to hit mainland areas of the Japanese empire. 
And so this weapon becomes critical to American lives and Japanese lives, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in uh, in the summer of 1945, uh, officials in Washington selected uh, four cities in Japan for targets for the initial atomic bombs, Hiroshima, Kokora, Nagata and Nagasaki. Uh, eventually, Hiroshima and Kokoro were selected. And the reason they were selected is uh, they had been relatively unscathed by the, the bombing that uh, Curtis LeMay's Air Force had uh, done on, on uh, Japan. And a lot of people say, well, why wasn't Tokyo bombed? Tokyo had been firebombed for uh, several days, and uh, most of Tokyo was destroyed, <clears throat> and over 100,000 people uh, had been killed. So they wanted to go to a, a city that was uh, fairly unscathed so that they could really get a good idea of what the bombs were doing. So on uh, August 6th of 1945, hmm. uh, Colonel Paul Tibbets took off from Tinian Island in uh, B-29, uh, and uh, that was equipped with the uranium bomb, the little boy bomb. And they had to use the B-29s because they were the only U.S. bombers that were big enough to carry these uh, large weapons. Eight hours later, he was over Hiroshima, dropped the bomb. The yield was uh, 13,000 kilotons or 13,000 tons of TNT. Uh, The numbers of casualties and fatalities are difficult to determine. Best estimates are about 80,000 killed uh, initially, 20,000 Japanese military, 40,000 Japanese civilians, and 20,000 Korean slave laborers. Uh, Almost 70% of Hiroshima's buildings were destroyed. But after the Hiroshima bombing, the Japanese military still didn't want to surrender. Mm. They were all part of the uh, Bushido uh, tradition, and they were willing to die to the last person uh, for their effort. As as many of these types of leaders are, they were willing to have others die, too. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So a a second uh, bombing was authorized on August 9th of 1945. Uh, A second B-29 lifted off with another plutonium bomb. It was supposed to be dropped on Kokora, Japan, but Kokora was clouded in, so they diverted to Nagasaki, where the bomb was dropped. Isn't it incredible, Rick Bigelow, how uh, fate and luck and chance enter into these kinds of things? Uh, Kokora survives. (laughs) Nagasaki is devastated because of cloud cover. That's exactly right. Yeah, it was just a random thing. And they had they almost didn't drop it over Nagasaki because that was clouded in, too. And at the last minute, the clouds uh, opened up and and they got a clear shot at it and uh, dropped the bomb. Uh, Casualties here were just about what they were in uh, Hiroshima. Forty four percent of the buildings were destroyed. Uh, 25,000 industrial workers, 40,000 civilians, and it's believed that there are also some U.S. and uh, allied POWs mm. in both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So it was it was just a, a devastating occurrence all around. Rick Bigelow, but what many was... members of the Jap- go ahead, go ahead. Uh, well, Rick Bigelow, what was the 
there's there's a level of vaporization in the center of any uh, any explosion. How right. much greater was this than any so-called conventional bomb? Well, uh, compared to the conventional bombs at the time, it was much more devastating. You know, hundred thousand times more uh, devastating. More. Wow! And like you said, a, a lot of the people close to the center just ceased to exist. Rick, Rick Bigelow, uh, we're going to take a break because I've got to go to hear from our great sponsors, do a little weather. If you can hang with us, I want to finish uh, this subject because, as you started to say, there were still people who did in the military, the Japanese military, did not want to surrender. But other things were happening simultaneously. I want to talk about that and then maybe a little bit about the Soviet uh, atomic spy, uh, spies and all of that kind of thing. Uh, Rick Bigelow is our guest. The Manhattan Project is our subject. We'll return after this. And talk about the horror of this bomb and the energy released, the people killed. It had to be a terrible decision. Uh, The greatness of Harry Truman was that he made decisions and that was it. And But while we're talking about it, because I didn't do it yet today, I want to mention, cause it, and, and there couldn't be a more appropriate time, let's go back to Mother Teresa for August 25th. She states, so helpless and weak, I think that is why God uses me, because I cannot depend on my own strength. I rely on him 24 hours a day. If the day had even more hours, then I would need his help and grace during those hours as well. I cling to him in prayer, and I encourage you to do the same. No doubt about it, with this powerful of a weapon, in much different words and thoughts, Harry Truman thought much the same thing when he had to make this terrible decision, which was necessary. And saved probably millions of lives, certainly millions of casualties. Uh, Amazing stuff, uh, Rick Bigelow. So there's an aftermath. Uh, We don't have time for all of it. You compiled so much great information. These bombs are dropped. It is devastating. But there's other military activity taking place that convinces Emperor Hirohito to surrender. Right. The, the, the day the uh, second bomb dropped on uh, Nagasaki, uh, that was the day that the Soviets came uh, crashing across the border into Manchuria and China and into Korea and, and fighting the Japanese forces there. So the combination of the... Uh, the two atomic bombs and the uh, the Russians coming into the war uh, convinced Hirohito that it was time to surrender, even though a lot of his military didn't want to surrender. In fact, even after he announced the surrender, there was an insurrection among uh, some of his troops, uh, and they tried to go in and, and uh, assassinate the emperor. Wow. So, you know, yeah, the, the militaristic... Uh, fervor was still there and uh, you know to defend the uh, homeland to the last person so 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 now in addition to all of this 
there's always been talk, and and it's become trite, but accepted that we were out of bombs after these two, and that's not actually that's not quite the case. Uh, Tell us what uh, uh, Colonel Groves had planned. Yeah, Groves had another one ready to go, and uh, in fact, I think most of it was already at Tinian on uh, on August nineteenth. And he expected to have two or three more in September, so we could have uh, we could have gone on uh, dropping more and more bombs on the Japan that would have just been uh, devastating. But you know, Harry authorized both the, the first two, and then he he called a pause. He didn't want to do anything more till he saw what the the Japanese did. And there were all kinds of back-channel communications sure. about surrender and, and so but, on. But and, a lot of people interpreted that pause as, hey, they don't have any more. This is a bluff after this. And that, that was not true. That's, an, that's a truly important and significant historical fact. That's right. We, we, uh, we were ready and willing. And I'll tell you what, all the soldiers and Marines and sailors around Okinawa were all for it. <laughs> Yeah. They, they uh, as many bombs as you need to drop <laughs> to end the war, you know, they were all for it. So they, you know, Hirohito uh, finally made his announcement to the Japanese public on August 15th and uh, that they would uh, fulfill all the requirements of the Potsdam Declaration, which was basically unconditional surrender. Uh, and then in 1946, Truman signed the Atomic Energy Act which uh, basically ceased uh, the Manhattan Project and the Atomic Energy Commission took over all of the uh, the duties of the Manhattan Project for nuclear weapons and also research into uh, nuclear submarines and so on and so forth. Fascinating. Well, Rick Bigelow, we're going to sk- we've got to take a break. We're going to skip over the, the the Russian component to this, the Russian spy co- Soviet spy component to all of this, uh, and and then look at the aftermath as you describe it uh, and finish with that because this whole topic is just fascinating and I'm so happy we have that movie Oppenheimer to go see and uh, I hope it's still in by the time I get there (laughs) because uh, you've you've really uh, flavored my taste for for this subject and I appreciate it. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with the aftermath of the Manhattan Project with Rick Bigelow, patent attorney extraordinaire and historian even more extraordinary. We'll be back. Give us the aftermath of the Manhattan Project. Well, one of the most interesting things about it is the Manhattan Project was not the most expensive uh, weapons project uh, during World War II. It, It cost about $2 billion for the Manhattan Project uh, the most expensive was the B-29 program, uh, which was actually started before the Manhattan Project back in the in the late 1930s. And the price tag for that was $2.3 billion. So the two most expensive uh, projects in World War II combined for the, uh, the <laughs> yeah. dropping of the atomic bomb. How, much, how, many, how many planes, B-29s, did we get out of that $2.3 billion? Thousands. <laughs> there, there were thousands of B-29s. The good old days. My gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there there were raids on Japan that had 500 B-29s in them. So 
Uh, and actually, a lot of the, not a lot, but some of the B-29s would uh, get uh, hit with flak or they w- would uh, suffer engine fatalities or something like that. And they landed on the emergency airstrips at Iwo Jima. Huh. So, uh, you know, that was a, another reason for taking Iwo Jima uh, back earlier in 1945. Yeah. But the, probably the most important thing that came out of this was that prior to the 1930s, the top centers of science in the world were in Germany and the UK and to a lesser extent in France. And, of course, uh, uh, some of the Italians, you know, Enrico Fermi and his group were, were just top top uh, flight uh, scientists and engineers. And, and most Nobel Prizes were won by Europeans. But as uh, fascism and Nazism took over Europe, like I said, over 1,500 scientists left Eastern Europe and and, uh, France and Italy and uh, came to the United States or or went to the U.K. or, like I said, some went to Russia and eventually. I I was in football practice at this time, but the song had come out much earlier. Now, we're honoring today, and what, what, you know, I just sent a note to Rick Bigelow just thanking him for his appearance. And I'm, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I was enthralled by this lesson. And the scientific knowledge that he was conveying was astonishing to me. I'm listening, and I was ready to say, my head is starting to hurt, Rick. <laughs> but don't forget, he's a patent attorney, he, which means he's a scientist. You want to talk about a talented guy? That's that's he's a scientist. He's an historian and an attorney. I, we are so lucky to have found each other, and I look forward to his next appearance. Uh, we're going to conclude today's program with Super Tramp Murph's. It's got to be one of Murph's favorites because he's always throwing them in. This date in '79, Super Tramp moved up to number two on the album charts with "Breakfast in America." And that's what you'll be hearing uh, in its full length as we conclude our tribute to veterans we lost in July. Joe Daniel, M.D., originally from German, P.A., late of York. Dwayne Shear, Clifford Township. Harold Portis of Madison Township. WYLK News Radio. This is the Bob Cordaro Show Podcast. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams. Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. Will always be worth it. Apply today at penfed.org slash savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ucalypt Speed Test Intelligence Data Fixed Median Download Speeds USQ3 2023. 
Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of colors starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.